From the Financial Times in London, I'm Shahrazad Dineshku, Consumer Industries Editor, and this is FT News. The food industry is struggling to find the next technological advancement to feed the world as the global population continues to grow. With me in the studio is food historian Polly Russell to discuss the future of food. Polly, let's start with the fact that at the moment people are very preoccupied in the food industry about how we're going to feed another 2 billion people on the planet. What I wanted to know was have we always worried about food production in the past? Yes, people have been concerned and worried about how we're going to feed people uh, since the beginning of time and really trying to solve the problem of feeding people is the story of food history uh, it's also the story of civilization you go back to you know the most basic developments are in terms of food production you know the urge to start farming as opposed to just hunting you know this is an attempt to try and control food supply so yes we've been trying to ensure that we can feed people and that that has been a concern forever but in terms of predicting the future of food this has also been a real sort of preoccupation and concern and and people have worried about it and looked into a crystal ball and often don't have very kind of clear ideas about what the future of food holds and actually uh, come up often with sort of mistaken ideas and mistaken solutions to trying to solve the problem of feeding people can you give me some examples of that examples of 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 the failure to predict Well I think we probably many of us have got memories of science fiction style fantasies of food being replaced by just a pill for instance that there will be some sort of magical pill that will provide all our nutritional needs and this was a a sort of fantasy which you saw both in science but also in literature right through the 19th century for instance but of course the fantasy pill does not exist or things like uh the sort of golden age of space travel where there was a moment where it, w- it was envisaged that we might all be eating sort of food in silver pouches and gels and you know actually it turns out that's a very niche market you might sort of think that some of the health market the bodybuilding market is a bit space agey but actually most of us don't eat that sort of food there was a big drive to produce food from algae which is very easy to grow um it produces highly nutritious food and to produce all sorts of different food formats from the late 19th century into the mid 20th century turns out most people don't like eating slime so it doesn't take off the history of the future of food is sort of littered with foods which have not taken off as you say the sort of pristine pill that was envisaged in in the 1960s certainly hasn't taken off and i i assume that's because we enjoy food and we don't see it as something that's got purely nutritional value yeah i think that's right and so there's a difference it seems to me between food which is medicinal or food which is purely functional which we will tolerate for a period of time as humans in order to solve a particular problem with our bodies let's say but actually the idea that you would just eat a pill which would sustain you for the rest of your life is incredibly depressing and it doesn't take off because we are social cultural communal creatures and food serves a function over the purely physical in fact its physical function is very important the only reason we eat we eat because 
It's a way in which we communicate, we share our values, and of course we derive great pleasure from eating. So for food developments, food innovations, new foods to be successful, I think what the history of food tells us is that not only do those new foods, new innovations have to solve a problem, they have to be culturally acceptable. They have to be understood by the culture which is going to adopt them. And if we're talking about new foods, I mean, we do have real problems at the moment, particularly when it comes to sustainability and the environment. So if we're talking about meat production, where in uh, a lot of mature countries in in the West or over in in the US, people are trying to eat less meat for their health. Yet we see in emerging markets, obviously, there's demand for more protein. How are we going to solve that problem it's slightly worrying to look into the future and make predictions, but well, I know that because I've I know of so many uh, failed predictions. So I'm especially nervous of making predictions about how you solve that. But if you think about food production and particularly meat, it does seem that insects may offer a solution in terms of providing volume of protein for large populations. So that may well be something that becomes more likely to be something that we're all eating. But would that ever be acceptable in Europe or or in America or in cultures where insect eating is just has a yuck factor rather than anything else? Well, it's really interesting when you think about taste and notions of taboo. So it's true that in many countries in the world, insects are thought of as taboo, disgusting, not something you want to put into your body. We have to remember that millions of people in the world do eat insects routinely as part of their diet for choice. So it is something that many people do. It's safe and it can also be pleasurable. So the question is, how is it possible to introduce a food which is seen to be very taboo and to make that palatable, acceptable? And I think when you look at history and you look at how tastes have changed you actually get some insight into understanding that tastes do change over time, that traditions do change over time and quite radically. So foods which today in the West we think of as being entirely acceptable for instance, Middle Eastern food, things like garlic, Chinese food, these were regarded with quite a high degree of suspicion within living memory. So, you know, there are accounts of Claudia Rodin, the wonderful Middle Eastern writer, talks about arriving in England in 1956 after the Suez crisis and her family cooking Middle Eastern food and, and British people referring to it as eyeballs and testicles, sort of a very obvious sort of veneer of disgust and superiority around this food. Well, I mean, now you don't walk down a high street without there being a sort of kebab shop, a Turkish shop. You know, Middle Eastern food is entirely part of the British foodscape. Similarly, something like Chinese food, when it first arrived on the high street, wasn't served up as kind of traditional Chinese food. It was introduced slowly by very canny business people, entrepreneurs, so that, you know, you would serve up, maybe you'd have sweet sour pork, but you'd serve it with bread and butter, you'd serve it with chips. So you'd sort of slowly introduce this new food. And so something that seems very odd and strange becomes normalised. So we could have mealworms with champagne or something like that to make it acceptable. If the mealworm was served as a snack to accompany the champagne, in other words, it fits with the structure of what we accept as being normal and pleasant, I don't see why not. But I think what we won't be doing is eating a mealworm pill on its own because it's nutritionally beneficial. What we'll be doing is we'll be eating mealworms, but we'll be eating them with other people. 
And what about the role of science in all this? I mean, there's a lot of focus on technological development, particularly where meat substitutes are are concerned. We have seen big innovations, say, in the 50s with canned food and, and things like that. And yet at the moment, we're finding a step back from processed food. People are demanding fresh, locally produced food. Again, how are we going to square that particular circle when there are so many environmental constraints? Well, the question of the role of science in food is really interesting because it seems to me that food is inherently a scientific practice, even in the kind of domestic level of making a cake, you're, you're engaged in a scientific practice. So any sort of food development, any any change in food taste, any new foods are inevitably sort of scientific. So the idea that science and food is a new thing seems to me to be a bit of a fallacy, I suppose. You're right that there is definitely a desire for food to be trustworthy and that often the idea that food is produced locally and is fresh is shorthand in a way for something being safe and trustworthy and probably tasting good as well. So the role of science, it seems to me, is to try and square that circle, as it were, to be able to produce food which is trustworthy, healthy, fresh but perhaps to use science in order to be able to provide more of it. How does understanding the past help us to think about future food production problems? I think what looking at the past suggests is perhaps which food innovations will potentially be adopted in the future. I think that's what it allows us to do. Let's take the example of a few really at the time very radical food innovations which actually have transformed the way that we eat today. And I'm going back now to the sort of 1840s, 1850s, a period of high industrialisation. And this is a period of huge urbanisation, a real problem of malnutrition, particularly with urban populations of not being able to feed the working poor effectively. And in 1847, a product launched, which was called Liebig's Extractum Carnis, which isn't the most appetising sounding food. What Uh, was it? It was it was actually liquid beef. And this was the brainchild of a man called Baron von Justus Liebig, who was a German organic chemist. And his research laid the groundwork, really, for nutritional science. But he had done fieldwork observing French peasants, and he observed that these peasants were drinking a beef broth. It came to him that there was something in this broth, there was some essence in this broth that was life-sustaining, and he decided it was to do with the sort of essence of beef. And really, he's sort of moving towards this understanding of protein. So the stock cube, really, of today. Exactly. Well, what Liebig's extractum carnis ends up becoming is something called Lemco, which is literally liquid beef. What we would know it as is Bovril. And he ships in 1865 1,760 pounds of cargo Lemco to Europe. And this is this moment where you have a very inexpensive, relatively speaking, it's a third of the cost of buying meat, inexpensive protein source, which is nutritious, is very warming, that can feed the sort of working body of the nation. And what about canned food, things like baked beans? Well, they're very interesting too. So there's a long history of 
trying to preserve food through all sorts of different methods, kind of salting and drying. And the recognition that you can pasteurise food starts to get developed in the sort of early 19th century. And in response to a competition which went out to try and find a way to feed the French armies and navies in the Napoleonic War, a um, man called Nicholas Appert worked out that you can pasteurise food in a jar. And that really set the beginning of what we know as the canning industry. By the mid-19th century, canned food production is up and running, but canned food is very much the food of the wealthy. It's a luxury item. It's not until the late 19th century, middle of the 20th century, that canned food becomes something which is consumed by the masses. And that has something to do in part with Henry Hines, who comes over from America. And he understood that canned food had the potential to appeal to large numbers of people. And he starts to market canned food specifically for the working poor. It's become the um, ultimate commoditized food product, really. And again, the reason it's successful is that it's tasty and palatable, it's safe, but it also solves a problem. You have masses of people working. Many people have very limited cooking and kitchen facilities. And here you produce a food in a format which really requires hardly any labour and hardly any time and is cheap. So it solves a problem and really it preempts the convenience food market which we see today. Thank you, Polly. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cosy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 